Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. I had to learn that all my judgments were wrong. They were just too harsh, too self-serving, too uh, too black and white, too, they were all about me. They weren't really about what was over there and them, you know? God, I had to fall a thousand times. And I'm still falling and still learning that. So your gift is your sin turned around. Your sin is your gift made whole. There is probably no one I quote more, read more, or respect more in terms of the future of spirituality these days than Father Richard Rohr. Uh, I got a chance to hang out with him with a few other friends in Albuquerque, New Mexico last summer. And he was so gracious to agree to have this conversation. And it just was exactly what I hoped it would be. He was funny. He was warm. He was insightful and wise and deep. And it is my great joy to present this to you. Uh, I love, for those of you who don't know Richard Rohr, you're just going to love him. And for those of you who know him, uh, you're going to love him even more. So enjoy this conversation with Father Richard Rohr. Well, Richard, my first question might be the most consequential, the most important, and that is, who is your favorite Irish rock band? (laughs) (laughs) You'll let us know that I'm with them in a couple weeks, huh? Do you? Well, I knew that you spent some time with them. I didn't know that you uh, had some time coming up with them. That is so uh, fun. In about 10 days, they invited me to their concert in Phoenix, and then we're going to fly to someplace and do a little retreat together yeah oh that's fantastic oh that's fantastic i saw them in philadelphia for this tour and it's just beautiful it's you're gonna love it you're gonna love it i can't wait well richard as you know i am part of the evangelical tribe uh i have a love-hate relationship with my tribe but perhaps that's true for everybody (laughs) (laughs) I um, do these days, yeah. <laughs> I, we, we're having an identity crisis. I, we, we don't know who we are. Uh, so from your perspective, uh, talk to me about how you see a way forward. Well, you know, you've got your roots, and uh, that's what serves evangelicals well in terms of your centered commitment to Jesus, to the gospel. Ah. Uh, It's just the way you interpreted the gospel was far too limited. And it it didn't give you a a broad access to truth. 
and it's not that I don't love the scriptures, but when you when you say sola scriptura, and you start there and you end there, you eliminate philosophy, psychology, history, common sense, uh, <laughs> and and of course I'm I'm speaking as a Catholic where we use scripture to affirm and confirm those things, but we don't start and end with them. It, it's a different hermeneutic. So I, I don't know exactly how the evangelical hermeneutic is going to e emerge or evolve, but it does feel like it's, it has to. And I, I think, you know, I'm not, I don't mean to be offensive, but your inability to deal with the pressing social issues of our time, I think has really brought this home that, that your field is not adequate to address reality. If I can just yes. call it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So it's that love of reality. And for me, God is, is just an interface word for reality. Uh, yes. When you can't deal with reality, you can't deal with God, you know? They're the same thing. So anyway. No, I love that. And I think I'm hearing a lot of uh, answers. Well, I just stand on the truth of God's word around a number of issues. And I just want to say, okay, okay, which interpretation of slavery, which interpretation <laughs> of women in ministry, uh, yeah. right? So, so I give you just a little piece of history to give yourself sympathy with yourself. You know, after the Enlightenment, and everybody in Europe was getting rational and smart, and the universities were taking over our country too, Catholics and Protestants, we started feeling real stupid and out of the conversation, which we were. So we decided to make the Pope infallible almost approximately at the same time that you decided to make the Bible inerrant. You know, and you can see it was a historical defensive siege mentality. Uh, we don't need it to be faithful people, you know. Our certitude is in God, not words, you know, or popes either, yeah. Yes. Well, that is beautiful. You know, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a course right now, and we're studying Christian history. And um, I studied that the early Christians used the Greek word, the, the philosophical concept of logos, to help Christianity sort of um, be taken seriously uh, in that time in the first century. And when I have heard you talk about the Christ, I wonder if, if Lagos and the Christ are one in the same. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, just to answer real quickly, they pretty much are the same. Uh, the, um, how should I come at it? They both refer to the pre-existent Son of God, or, or Jesus, the first incarnation, which is Trinitarian. And perhaps you know from my uh, recent book on the Trinity, until we get back to Trinity and rebuild the thing from the bottom up, that's why we keep getting in these problems, you know. And we pretty much ignored the first manifestation of the eternal word, which, which we would call the Logos or Christ, because we so fell in love with the second manifestation, yes. the personal one, Jesus. And Jesus, this is not to diminish Jesus, but he's only been around for 2,000 years. You know, the Christ has been around for 13.6 billion years. And 
you just got to say it that forthrightly for Christians to begin to get the point that we're talking about a universal truth, not a truth that just started 2,000 years ago. This is doing us a favor. I don't know why any Christian would be against it, <laughs> but they are sometimes. Yeah. So we're going to take it... We're going to take it slow, Richard, because I think this is where a lot of Christians, even listening, just went like like the record player just skipped. Like, what? Jesus is different than the Christ? Yeah, so can can you go slow and, and build a case for that for people who haven't ever thought about that? Yeah, it's you know, you can only hear what you were told to pay attention to, or you can only see what you're... Uh, you know, I'm a Franciscan. Our Christology was formed on the prologue to John's Gospel, on the, first, the hymn in the first chapter of Colossians, and the hymn in the first chapter of Ephesians. If you want two more smaller ones, the first paragraph of Hebrews and the first paragraph of 1 John. So there we have five good, very <laughs> clear, absolutely clear. So if you think I'm not scriptural, you don't know your own scriptures. I, those five passages make it absolutely clear that the Christ was from the beginning, as Ephesians says several times. But no one, uh, we weren't told to pay attention to that, you know, because we were still, very understandably, falling in love with Jesus. Now, the reason we Franciscans emphasize that, you know enough about the life of St. Francis, to know that he spoke of brother sun, sister moon, sister water, brother air, the entire world was a subjective interface with God. Uh, now, he wasn't an educated theologian. Francis was an uneducated mystic, you know, Italian, the 13th century. So uh, what we had to do in our to bring Francis to theological uh, acceptability was to make it into a theology. Well, we opened up Colossians and Ephesians and so forth, and we said, well, this is what he's talking about. The first Bible, as St. Bonaventure called it, the first creation, the first revelation, was from the beginning. You know? And uh, if we would only recognize that, it doesn't diminish Jesus at all, but it helps us recognize that Christ is not his last name, that Christ is a title that, thank God, we attribute to him. And I think correctly, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. But in fact, when you make that faith statement, you're making two different faith statements. I believe in the historical Jesus who came to reveal the Christ to history, but the Christ far preceded Jesus. Uh, now, I'm writing the book on that right now. It won't come out till next year, but uh, believe me, that's not said lightly. I, I've had to do my life's work to bring the scriptures and the tradition and the fathers of the church uh, and good philosophy and theology to bear on. I'm still trying to do that. Thank you. You've been such a gift to us, Richard, such a gift and continue to be. And I can't wait to read your book on the Christ. And I've heard you talk about, um, because I think that relates to this next question, the, uh, in the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is described as the archagos, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one that goes first. How does that relate to the Christ that has existed for 13.6 billion years, filling the person of Jesus of Nazareth as it relates to now us in 2017? 
Yeah, well, I got to be honest and admit that the words Jesus and Christ, as I use them, are not always used consistently the exact same way in the New Testament. So sometimes Hebrews, like that passage, does speak of Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah. As the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, you know, uh, which I would have no trouble assenting to. It all has to do with personification. Let's try this. The Christ is the metaphysics of of the of reality, the the whole logos. And when I use word logos, I use the word blueprint, as you probably oh, know. Yeah, yeah. Logos is just another word. Here's the initial blueprint. It's mirrored in everything that's created since the beginning of time. Uh, now, I would guess around 2,000 years ago, humanity is mature enough, conscious enough, interface enough, mutual enough that we're ready to take this universal principle and meet it personally. As First John says, the one we can see and touch and love. But uh, uh, that's, uh, well, it tells me there's been an evolution of consciousness. And God respects that evolution of consciousness. Now, I hope that word evolution isn't scary to your people. It shouldn't be. No. No. Just, we believe in growth. We believe in change, which is obvious. I mean, it's like denying what's around. You have children. You understand growth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anybody who has eyes understands growth and change. But uh, we've been less ready to see that in history itself and consciousness itself, that humanity is growing up. I know it doesn't look like it recently, but... Uh, <laughs> 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 but we are trying to, yes. Three steps forward, two steps backward. That's the way it goes. Yeah, and I think that's such a freeing way to understand, especially the scriptures, which it's so yeah. hard to understand yeah. some of what we read in the Hebrew scriptures. But when we look at it from the state of human consciousness evolving, then then certain things that don't make sense now, you can say, well... Uh, that was a that was a different consciousness, and people understood God in a far different way, and wrote about God in a far different absolutely. way. Absolutely, yes. And I know if you've never thought it in that frame, you think you're going to lose the authority of the Bible. I I trust you. You will rediscover the authority of the Bible on a much deeper level. You know, a much more compelling level. Yeah. But they have to make the journey themselves. So. Yeah. Well, let me, I want to pivot and ask a different question. I, I listen to your homilies uh, from time to time in that, in that church that I, that we drove right by when, when I was down there. And so I can picture you, you know, preaching there. Um, but you, you, you said there are three layers to love. There's self-love, there's familial or tribal love, and finally there's universal love. And I stopped, I stopped the recording, and I just thought about that. I thought that was such a beautiful picture. Can you explain what you mean by that? You know, if I remember correctly, don't quote me on it, but I think that schema is from Carol Gilligan, who, who tried to make it very, very simple in her schema of the evolution of consciousness and the evolution of, of spiritual maturity. Uh, so it's pretty clear that a certain percentage never get beyond their natural egocentrism. They don't even know how to love their own family or their own people. 
So, but thank God, the vast majority of humanity moves somewhat to that level. They still keep pulling back into egocentricity, but we need the family system, marriage and children especially, to pull us out of our that first stage. Now, the harder journey even than that is to get people to universal love. And if you take most of the teaching of Jesus, it's trying to get first century Palestinian Jews uh, who say, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Yeah. He's trying to get them to love their enemy. And with little success, it seems. I, I would say it's, I'm going to just pick an arbitrary number. I think it's certainly less than 10% of humanity, probably less than five, that ever gets to universal love. Most people spend their whole life back and forth between egocentricity and love of people who are just like me. And of course, of course, you can only love people who are just like you or who are your children or your wife. You really don't love at all because they're extensions of your own ego. Yeah. So God has got to get you to love people who are not like you or you really haven't loved at all. Now, once you set out on that course, it's pretty much unstoppable because once you open the gate to universal love and you let the agape unconditional love of God in your heart, you're a different kind of species. You really are. <laughs> your politics changes, your, your uh, class sense changes, your racism falls apart. All of the things that are tearing us apart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I reflect on even my own life with my kids, and I, I see my egocentricity even at war with my with my tribal love, and so that that tells me where I am, Richard. Um, but but I also can see this in in Jesus. He seems that's that's why I think he's always teaching us um, to 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 love the other, to love your enemy, because that's where we'll right. That's where we'll find God. That's where because he transcends tribalism, he transcends religion, he transcends. Uh, group think right that's right and you know your your so-called enemy are those who are other they invariably hold a gift for you of a part of yourself you have not yet tamed met love or afraid of yourself now i know that sounds clever but it, it's just true yeah it's just true the people who threaten you represent part of you that you haven't met yet that you haven't forgiven yet, that you haven't loved yet. You need them. I love the title of your book. You need them to become whole. <laughs> you really do. You must. And Carl Jung will say this just as a psychologist, not even a feeling. You must love your enemy because they always hold your denied self, what he called the shadow self. Yeah. Well, I think that's why the Enneagram and other works that you've done such, you've given us such great gifts on and really help us to um, engage the shadow self. And so my next question uh, relates to that. I've heard you say, we, as it relates to our shadow self, we have to learn to transform our demons into angels. So can you talk about how to do that? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, let's start with this. As you know, I just say the first thing that comes into my head. <laughs> I hope it's helpful. Remember the very word Lucifer that we use to... Is that word in the Bible, Lucifer? I don't think... I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't 
think it is, doesn't matter. But the word literally means the one who bears the light, who carries the light, you know. And the mythology that emerged in the first thousand years, you know, is that the devils were fallen angels, fallen angels. In other words, they weren't initially bad because we, we couldn't have God creating evil. We know God only created good. So we created this beautiful story that made sense to our minds that the devils were initially angels. But I'm just going to look at that psychologically, that um, the very things that we call our demons invariably, as I said before, if we can work with them, work through them, they turn into some of our best friends. It's just true. Apparently, you know the Enneagram. Yeah. And that's what first brought that lesson home for so many of us, that our very worst fault, if we're willing to own it as a fault, suffer its humiliating revelations, and ask forgiveness, or it can take many different forms. But the very place where we were most stupid is the place where we can be most healed. Uh, like I'm a one on the anagram, we're righteous, self, really <laughs> obnoxious people. <laughs> it took me all my life to see that, and yet it's been suffering that humiliation all my life. There you go again, Richard, your, your undue zeal and your undue righteousness. It's the facing of that that I think I'm right in saying is my greatest gift. Then in general today, of course, I'm in my 75th year, but now I tend to be serene most of the time and, uh, and very forgiving of people's faults uh, because I, I had to learn that all my judgments were wrong. They were just too harsh, too self-serving, too, uh, too black and white, too, they were all about me. They weren't really about what was over there and them, you know. God, I had to fall a thousand times. And I'm still falling and still learning that. So your gift is your sin turned around. Your sin is your gift made whole. Um, it's such a surprise, but uh, that is in Ephesians, you know. The angels of darkness must disguise themselves as angels of light. Thomas Aquinas, our great Catholic intellectual, you know, he said, the only reason people are willing to do evil is they must disguise it as good to themselves. When you think you're doing good, be careful. <laughs> it's often, uh, no one will willingly, he said, do evil. They have to explain it in their own mind as good. These white supremacists, they, they, you know, I, the easy thing would be to call them sinful, wrong, but I'm, I'm going to use an unkind word just to make them. They're basically stupid. Yeah. Right? yeah. They know. They don't know. Their their frame is so tiny, and they knock around inside this little little box, and their their white supremacy is deemed as virtue. God, it only works if you stay in that little box with other people just like you which is a very small world, which is not the reign of God or the kingdom of God, which by definition has to include the whole. Yes. Oh, my goodness. We've <laughs> Watch out. 
if you um, think you're doing good. I just want to... And that is an explosion in my mind. For ministers especially, because yeah. we set out to do good. You know? We have such an inflated self-image. <laughs> <laughs> so well, one, of the, one of the things I heard you say that I actually think I laughed out loud because it was so true, uh, or maybe you wrote it, but 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 you said you know we we've none of us have had a, a truly none of us do anything motivated truly by only good. <laughs> That's always a mixed bag, and when you said that, it was so freeing to me because I've been a pastor for twenty two years now. And I'm constantly seeing how, oh my goodness, that was really about ego. Like that that thought there, that comment there that sounded maybe so magnanimous is really about me. Well, <laughs> the ego just, it takes more clever forms of disguise the older you get. That's the only way you can get away with its game. It has to be better hidden. And the best hiding place of all is God. You hide behind God language, religious language, Bible quotes. That's the ultimate disguise for evil. That's why so many ministers get in so much trouble. Yeah. They have such little self-knowledge about what's really happening. No. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. So um, can I ask you, Richard, what what is bringing you hope these days that you're seeing? What are some things that... Uh, are lifting your spirits? Well, that's easy to answer. Uh, you know, I, I just spent last weekend up here in Taos, northern New Mexico, with 75 millennials, your generation, I guess. <laughs> I'm a little older, but but I'm, I'm close. I'm close. Okay. You know, you want to talk about creative, intelligent, and most of all, kind, kind people. This uh, conference center that we use gives conferences all year, you know. And the leader came up to me the last day. He said, I've never met so many smart, kind people in one place in all my life. And, of course, we were addressing issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, all the biggies. Uh, but they are of a different species than my generation. Now, admit, I admit not all millennials are like them. But we have tipped over some points in the last 30, 35 years uh, that the things that you and I considered evil, they don't even bother with. Because yeah. they're, <laughs> they're the things that are, uh, the, the resistance to them has become the evil instead of uh, issues of race and gender especially. It's, uh, they don't have time for it. They just don't have time for wasting a year of their life with this silliness while the real issues of injustice and poverty and prejudice are destroying the world, you know. So I, I, we've crossed a line. There must be something like, you know, that hundredth monkey story. I feel there we're in a hundredth monkey phenomenon because I've talked to two appointments I had this morning. One, a medical doctor, the other one, a lawyer, highly educated people who uh, feel to me like, well, it's taken me to 75 to get to where they're at at 35, put it that way. And, and I don't know how they did it. I don't know. <laughs> 
trying to work so dang hard at it. No, I'm not saying I'm there. I'm there, but I know uh, people of different races and genders don't bother me. That's just not an issue, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the uh, the flow is free now of love, and that's a gift from God. But um, how did these other people get there so quickly? So this is my long-term answer. Yes, I'm very hopeful. Uh, I, th I think uh, one of my friends was up there last week. Her name's Caitlin Curtis. She's a Native American. Yes, what a dear. I met her. Isn't yeah. she amazing? She wrote a poem at the end that blew us out of the water. God, and she just wrote it in a few minutes. Tell her to read it to you. Okay, read I will. I will. Uh, she is, you know, she has a book coming out uh, in a couple months, Glory Happening. And she's one of the people that I'm, I'm, that brings me hope. When I, when I started to read her, the manuscript, yeah, it, it, it's stunning. I mean, it's just beautiful. So, yes. and you know, being a Native American, I live right here in the middle of reservations and I'm surrounded how wounded, how much we have wounded the Native peoples. And when you see a woman who owns her Native identity, but has moved beyond victimhood, has moved beyond negativity. You've heard me speak of the three boxes, have you? Yes, but please, please go there again. Well, order, disorder, reorder. And there's no nonstop flight from order to reorder. You must go through disorder. Now, our Christian word for that was the folly of the cross. You know? yeah. And when you see people as young as Caitlin and many others who were on this weekend, who've already gone through the disorder stage without throwing out what was good about order, by the way. And that's what so many evangelicals and conservative Roman Catholics are afraid of. They think we're throwing out order. Yeah. And I say, if you think that, you're not listening to me. I'm talking about holding on to the essentials of order, not the non-essentials, the essentials. And there are a lot more than maybe they think I mean. Going through the necessary disorder, that's the prophets. Yeah. The prophets are those who puncture holes in the arrogance of Judaism, in the exclusionary nature of their Judaism. We have to do the same with Roman Catholicism. You have to do the same with evangelicalism or Protestantism. Uh, the first explanation of order you get, I hate to say it, but it's largely self-serving, it's largely cultural. It has little to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with Minnesota. No offense. <laughs> we, we've always had a love relationship with Minnesota. We invariably have two members of our staff from your state. Uh, so we tease about Minnesota culture. That's Minnesota nice. Minnesota. Oh, I know. And it's so beautiful. But it's dangerous, too, because, as you know, a lot of resentment and anger can hide behind even Minnesota nice, um, or a lot of judgmentalism. But then you don't have to take responsibility for it because they're nice in Minnesota. <laughs> we have our own demons here in New Mexico. I'm not picking on you. But uh, unless there are prophets who poke a hole in what Thomas Merton called your private salvation project, you've perhaps heard me use that term. Your private salvation project was my early Roman Catholicism, my early understanding of Franciscanism, priesthood, 
America, name it. It's great to get you started. Now, that's what I'm talking about in the book Falling Upward, if you ever read what, yep. what I call container. And if you built a good container, like I bet you did in Minnesota and I did in Kansas, of all places, uh, it got us off to a great start. But as I usually put it with the students here in the school, it's, a, it's the best place to start. A certain container of order and meaning, a certain coherence to reality. But it's not the best place to continue, and it's certainly not the best place to end. Because all you end up doing is loving yourself, that's all. Not the world. Which is always other, other. Yeah, we need the other to expand beyond ourselves, to expand yeah. beyond the container. Yeah. And I like how you consistently, uh, you know, these, these foundations that we have, this container. When you're in disorder, it's so easy to look backwards and say, what an idiot anyone is who's still there, you know? I know, I know, yeah. Right? Uh, and then look forward with, with fear, perhaps. Um, but when we do that, we're, we're, we're not being true to the fact that we're still, I mean, we're, we carry that with us, right? I mean, uh, and, and, uh, so I think that's a, that's a beautiful picture of what you call transcend and include, right? You know, it helps a lot of people, Steve. Let me say one more thing. Part of the difficulty of it is, is we can't imagine or picture what reorder looks like. Now that's the darkness of faith, you see. If you knew exactly, well, here's where reorder is gonna take me. But you never are given that ahead of time. And so the unknownness of it. Now we who call ourselves people of faith, we were supposed to be the experts in dealing with the unknown. But you and I both know that we created generations of Christians who are completely uncomfortable with the unknown. They insist on certitude, order, light, explanation, every step of the way. It's, it's 180 degrees opposite of faith. And, and, and it passes for faith. But here I go back to what I earlier said about after the enlightenment, we got tired of looking stupid. So we redefine faith as certitude. Yeah. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certitude. You know? And we've got Catholic and evangelicals who, I'm not trying to put them down or pretend I'm superior, but they've never been taught biblical faith. Yeah. <laughs> they have a bunch of glib certitudes, so they never have to walk in darkness. And that's not faith anymore. Well, I even think about the father of, of all of the, you know, of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, Abram. He, he's told by God to go to a place that he will be shown. <laughs> None of us like that. All right. So uh, you have said this thing that I have told some people, and they always shake their heads and go, oh, gosh, I hate that that's true. You've said after 30, success teaches you nothing. Nothing. I always said that to the men the day before they went out their lone day in the desert when I did the initiation rites. Yeah, everything you learn of a spiritual, psychological, maturing nature after 30, you need some, 
you need some successes. You do. And that's why you want to give them to your kids and you want to cheer them on. But I could even stretch it to 35. <laughs> but, I'm certainly, <laughs> but I'm certainly going to say after 35, everything of consequence, everything that's worthwhile is learned by mistake, failure, and humiliation. Uh, and, and that's why it's called the good news. The cross brings you to resurrection. There it is. I don't know how we missed the point. Say we're saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we think that's a liturgical acclamation, I guess. It's not a psychological description of what you got to go through. That's, that falling apart is part of the deal. Now, as you know, that was my old point in the book, Falling Upward. I love that book. I'm not sure uh, if that one's my favorite or Everything Belongs is my favorite. Uh, but certainly Falling Upward is um, the the prophetic word to people like me who are 46 years old and trying to still ascend. Um, and I, I, as you were talking, I, I, I wonder, you know, about death and resurrection. I mean, I, I wonder if part of where we get stuck is we see that as a one-time thing, uh, especially evangelicals. We pray a prayer where we die to our sins and then we're good. That's just, reality doesn't work that way, yeah. It's, it's a transactional notion of salvation, Steve, not a transformational one. You probably know I use those words a lot. But we did, just so you don't think I'm picking on you, we Catholics did the same thing with our understanding of the sacraments. You know, baptism, check my resume, confirmation, first communion, uh, married in a Catholic church, all the usuals. You can check all of those transactionally, and not one of them transformed your consciousness. And you did the same thing, I'm afraid, in a more subtle way. It was closer, I think, to the goal, but it still became largely, you know, making a decision for Jesus, yeah. which do once. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just the reality it doesn't work that way. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud. Uh, it, I mean, it really does. But okay, just a couple more questions. This is so wonderful. Thank you so much for. I just. I. I. I love this. Um, there's. There's so much anger right now. Uh, especially in the United States, uh, I'm even as I scan through Twitter and Facebook, they're just, I mean, on all sides, right, left, there's so right. much anger. What's what's beneath that? Normally, as a counselor and working with people on retreats, when I bet you've gotten in little tiffs with your wife, when you're insecure about whether you're right. It, when you're afraid, fear shows itself in overstatement, in, in hyperbole, yes. in intense overstatements. I mean, we've got people in Washington, it seems, who can only talk in hyperbole. Yeah. Only. That's all they do. Uh, it's just, it's so obvious they're terribly insecure people. When you're not insecure, you don't need to exaggerate all the time. You don't need to make everything the biggest, the best, the strongest, the largest. The, uh, it, that's what 13-year-old boys do because yeah. they're insecure. 
you know, once you're educated, I don't mean to sound sophisticated, but you know, reality is subtle. And you don't you don't explain reality well by constantly making overstatements. So this the or you know to use four letter words, men do it all the time. It's when they're losing the argument or they they want to proclaim their toughness to all the guys in the bar. Well, the quickest way to use that is to use a bunch of four letter words. Now everybody knows I'm dangerous, I'm strong, and they're going to stay out of my way. Well, what a cowardly way of entering the bar, you know? <laughs> but it takes a certain self-knowledge to see that pattern. So in quick answer to your good question, I, I think most of the anger is a country that doesn't have much self-knowledge. They would see what they're doing. When you, when you can be so angry all the time, be so overstated all the time, you're not standing back and looking at yourself. If you could take a video of yourself, you'd cry. <laughs> My God, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right, though. It's so it's, it's obvious. But, you know, they had to do that. I don't know when you went through homiletics classes or courses where they took videos. This was 50 years no. ago. They took videos of us as young men and you just oh you couldn't <laughs> they were so terrible every person should have people take video of them when they're in one of their rants their hyperbolic exaggerations or their angry dismissals oh it's it's running and it's ruining america it really is Everybody should have a video of when they're going on their rants. Wow. And then promise to watch it. <laughs> yeah. My wife and I pulled out a VCR of me preaching about 25 years ago, and we put it in, and I couldn't stand it. I was like, honey, stop. And then I half expected her to say, oh, no, honey. I mean, it's that's actually pretty. And she was like, oh, yeah, make it stop. <laughs> Even she didn't like it. <laughs> well, um, my last question, um, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor and some people that listen are pastors. What would you say to, you know, the shepherds of, uh, churches, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, what, what word would you give to those of us who uh, are trying our best to live in the third way and follow Jesus into a better future? You know, I think we are so filled with self-doubt today because of the materialism and secularism of our culture. Anybody who's got the humility to be listening to you and me right now, I have every good reason to tell them, you trust yourself. And I was... I, I think we've got to give some self-confidence back to Christians because we're we're just doubting ourselves at such deep levels. And if the incarnation is true, if you are the body of Christ, and I'm the body of Christ, which I believe ontologically, objectively, then there is still the indwelling spirit within you and I, as weak as you and I might be. And so we're doing Christians a favor if they can hear this kind of critical conversation we just had, 
Once they can hear that, then I can walk in and say, I'm in the reorder box now. I'm saying, you trust yourself. You are a son of God. You're a beloved daughter of God. Uh, you, You can't give a good sermon if you're sitting there doubting your identity as a Christian or as a as a loving man or a loving woman. So I, I mainly try to build them up. Yeah. But build them up after I've first been allowed to critique. You understand? Yes. <laughs> i to say it that way because otherwise we have this pseudo-flattery. Yeah. You know, uh, telling everybody they're wonderful and nobody believes it. <laughs> we haven't told them the bad news, the cross, before we've announced the resurrection. Well, thank you for that, um, and thank you for everything that you've given over the last 45 minutes, Richard. This was such a gift to me. Uh, you, when I was with you, with, with our friends uh, last summer, it was such a gift. We just couldn't stop talking about it, about your gentleness, your humor, your joy, your depth. And um, so thank you. Thank you so much, my friend. I really, really appreciate you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow me on Facebook at Steve Weens Author, Twitter at Steve Weens, and Instagram at Steve Weens. And you can find all my work, all my books, the show notes, all kinds of other fun stuff on my website, steveweens.com. And please consider supporting me on Patreon. Lots of fun benefits for all levels of patrons. Check it out at patreon.com slash thisgoodword. Suburban